This is The Guardian. Gegenseitiger Respekt ist die Basis für ein gutes Gespräch. Im Netz ist das alles andere als selbstverständlich. Und woher zur Hölle willst du das wissen? So eine vorlotte Bitch wie dich sollte man an den Herd fesseln, dir dein Handy wegnehmen und... und wir feiern dich dafür, dass du dich als Frau nicht unterkriegen lässt. Keine Angst, du bist hier nicht allein. Wir alle entscheiden, ob wir das Netz dem Hass überlassen. Werde Teil der Telekom-Initiative gegen Hass im Netz und setze ein Zeichen. Telekom. This week, the first ever African Climate Summit has been taking place in Kenya. Good morning and welcome to Nairobi. It's called the Green City in the Sun. And welcome to the Africa Climate Summit. Nowhere is this more critical. The International Rescue Committee has found that seven out of the top ten countries impacted by the climate crisis are in Africa, despite it contributing just 4% of global carbon emissions. Let me be clear. These conversations are necessary. Africa's carbon footprint remains small. But the human toll of climate change is disproportionately high. It's also a continent racked by debt and ready to grow its economy. And in some countries, this could mean through vast new fossil fuel projects. The summit set out to grapple with this dilemma. What does a just energy transition look like? And how can it be paid for? The restoration and expansion of Africa's natural carbon sinks are not just an environmental imperative. They are an unparalleled economic goldmine. From The Guardian, I'm Madeleine Finlay, and this is Science Weekly. Caroline Kimayu, you're The Guardian's East Africa Global Development Correspondent, and you're based in Nairobi, where the first African Climate Summit, which has been organised by the African Union and is being hosted by the Kenyan government, is taking place. And you've been attending this summit. So tell me a bit about it. What's its purpose? The idea generally is to bring African leaders together to better influence climate commitments. And one of the things we're expecting is for leaders to sign a Nairobi declaration, which will essentially outline the continent's priorities on climate finance and the energy transition and serve as a blueprint for that going into COP28. So it does sound like there's lots of big issues to be discussed at the summit, but paint me a picture of the summit itself. What's it like being there? There's an energy of real discussion, many different panels taking place. We have ultimately around 30,000 delegates from across the continent, as well as prominent global leaders as well. So we have 25 African heads of state, US climate envoy John Kerry, the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, as well as the COP28 president, uh, president-designate Sultan Al-Jaber. There has been some controversy around attendance as well. You spoke to Hardy Yakubu from Africa Rising, a solidarity movement, and he's also the convener of the so-called Real Africa Summit. 
So what is that and what are his and other activists' concerns? Well, the sense around this summit is that, among campaigners at least, is that the West has had disproportionate representation at the summit. Climate groups and campaigners were quick to point out that a majority of the side panels were um, given to Global North organizations, despite several African organizations applying and having their applications denied. And I also spoke yesterday to the Ugandan climate campaigner, Vanessa Nakate, who also said that the campaigners were ultimately closed out of decision-making spaces. And if someone of her profile, you know, she's one of the more prominent figures in the campaigner space was echoing those sentiments. I do think that there is a sense that the climate groups and campaigners were sidelined from the discussions during the summit. What people really want is, you know, the just transition and also, you know, African solutions by African people. And we know that today, like the being heads of states um, speaking, but I've heard from a number of uh, my friends and fellow activists that it has been incredibly uh, inaccessible to get in those spaces. And that's the challenge we find with these summits, that it's very easy, you know, to allow us to be in these side events, but in the rooms where, you know, actual decisions or speeches are being given, it's kind of hard to get there. And I think that's one of the things that really need to be addressed, that young people are not fully involved then with the real Africa summit, that's what they're calling themselves, which is convened by Hardy Yakubu, who you'd mentioned from Africa Rising, said that they were dissatisfied with the direction of the summit in terms of feeling that it had been hijacked by Western interests when it comes to McKinsey, the US consulting company, being so center um, to the designing of the agenda of the summit, which was seen both as like a uh, snub to African expertise. Um, but then also there was the sense too that McKinsey does have a number of fossil fuel company clients and um, it was also involved in the design of the African Carbon Markets Initiative, which the campaigners are strongly opposed to. Before we get on to the carbon markets, I'd like to talk about the two main themes of the summit. This is green growth and climate finance. Starting with green growth, what's been on the agenda there? So the sense is strong that as the world grapples with climate change and as we are falling behind on climate goals, then there's a need to skip past the high carbon pathways that, you know, industrialized countries have taken so far. The number of countries who have oil and gas reserves and, and that kind of thing are just over a, a dozen. So the majority would have interest in pursuing renewable energy track. But for those countries which may want to exploit their resources, there is still a sense that the transition would ultimately be inevitable at some point, And uh, there would be no sense in them opposing some kind of investment or additional capital in that. We know 600 million people on the continent do not yet have energy access and the demand is expected to grow even further. So the question is, what would a just energy transition look like for the continent as far as, you know, is it fair at all for them to be asked to withhold development, you know, which is seen as the exploitation as of their resources 
when other countries have already gone through this trajectory and been able to achieve significant development by doing so. But at the same time, you know, the people who oppose that point of view say that oil and gas extraction in countries like Nigeria has ultimately had devastating impacts on populations in places like the um, Niger Delta and hasn't ultimately resulted in significant energy access for its population. And um, so many people argue that there are big possibilities for renewable energy, providing the same kind of development while not harming the, the planet. I mean, this takes us on to finance, really, because even if, say, solar, for instance, is the cheapest source of energy in many parts of Africa, all of it requires a lot of investment. And if there isn't enough money coming in, countries aren't going to be able to step up their renewables, even if they wanted to, are they? Exactly. So let me start by saying Africa has the advantage of not being tied into you know, fossil fuel infrastructure as heavily as other parts of the world. But on the financing side, in the summit, there was an overarching sense that there is that incentive to move towards this kind of renewable energy. But at the same time, there is a huge barrier of um, financing. And, you know, Africa receives an extremely low amount of climate investments. So that's definitely a major factor hampering the transition. On this second theme of climate financing, you know, at previous summits, namely COPs, big figures have been promised from wealthy countries for adaptation as well as loss and damage. But that funding hasn't been forthcoming, has it? So what's being talked about here? The promised funding that has not been materialising. It's taken an interesting framing, this summit. The Kenyan president, William Ruto, has been you know, very vocal about the fact that he would like the summit to be an opportunity for a reframing and for Africa no longer to merely be seen as a victim of climate change, but be central to providing solutions as to the way forward and how the climate crisis can be dealt with, with a view to what's beneficial for the continent. An opportunity-oriented focus on climate action is the engine for propelling Africa into a a realm of stability and prosperity. The way we frame these discussions matters. I invite all of us to adopt opportunity lens as we navigate these complex dialogues. For a very long time, we have looked at this as a problem. It is time we flipped and looked at it from the other side. There are opportunities, immense opportunities as well. Ruto is a uh, business mogul in some sense, and he has taken a very business-minded approach to climate issues, especially on the financing side, shifting the focus away from the non-forthcoming funding from Western countries to looking at how issues like adaptation can be framed in terms of bankable investments, you know, how can there be more funding from multilateral banks? Someone actually said to me during the summit itself, it sounded more like a financial summit than a a climate summit. Ultimately, it comes down to the fact that researchers and adaptation groups have said that the funding needs to increase by nearly 10 times by 2035, or that the continent would risk losing trillions of dollars in economic benefits by then. And one way that countries are hoping to bring in private financing is through 
these carbon markets that we've been mentioning. So this is the setup and sale of carbon credits, where when you emit carbon, you can buy a credit to quote unquote offset that carbon. And that might be through projects which are drawing down carbon, like tree planting, or it might be by ensuring that no more carbon is emitted in certain places, say by protecting a forest. And there are so many interesting facets and discussions around these markets. So first, the pro side, why are some governments in favour? Ultimately, African leaders see this as one pathway into getting more climate financing. And we've seen countries like Gabon, which uh, received a huge payout in 2019 for reducing emissions. And, you know, it's one of the densely forested African countries. In the end, what I'm hearing and what I heard from the government officials that I spoke with, Kenyan government officials, that is, is that Africa has these resources that they feel have not been accounted for and could be monetized, for, for a lack of a better word. I was having a conversation yesterday about a banker of one of the big multinational banks. And he was telling me about Africa's GDP. And GDP is about assets. It's about what you have. We have the carbon sinks that serves the world, cleans our environment, acts as sequestration of carbon that is produced by others. But we get nothing for it. It's not anywhere in our balance sheet. The day we put our whole assets in our balance sheet, you will know that we are a very wealthy continent. So in some sense, Africa is saying we've got all these valuable resources when it comes to drawing down carbon. Let's let's make the most of those. But there have also been some strong voices calling out these carbon credit markets and not least by some of our colleagues here at The Guardian. So talk me through the issues and the kind of opposition against this. There's a huge opposition to the fact of Africa positioning itself to um, offer what people are calling imaginary commodity. Mohamed Addo, the director of the climate think tank PowerShift Africa, who I spoke with, said that essentially the winners of this would be fossil fuel companies who could just continue to burn without taking responsibility at the end of the day for scaling down emissions when the world is facing the climate crisis. There has been evidence that the projects don't offset the carbon they promised to. We've had instances in Kenya where certain projects have been brought under scrutiny for exploitation of communities, you know, where the carbon market projects are taking place. You know, there's the question of does this money even reach who it should? And then, you know, ultimately, there is a sense that winners of this whole thing are not only the Western companies and countries that continue to emit carbon, but then there's also the financial brokers in between who are making significant money off of this. And when it comes to the pricing of the carbon credits anyway in the voluntary market, which is currently quite low in value, would that be able to deliver the kind of climate finance that African countries are imagining? But the sense is that there is a strong opposition to Africa's involvement in the carbon markets and, and the sense that in some ways it's a, a neo-colonial way to approach the climate crisis.
So, Caroline, there are clearly very key issues here being discussed and we're chatting early Wednesday morning. At the end of the summit, there is hopefully going to be this so-called Nairobi declaration being drafted. So what might we expect from it? I had a look at the draft. There is essentially a push for global financial reforms saying that it would allow many African countries to access critical development resources as they respond to climate crisis needs. And it's calling for multilateral banks to make concessional and emergency funding more easily available. Also to de-risk private investments in renewable energy because the sense is that part of the difficulty attracting investment has been a sense that it is risky for companies or uh, individuals to make these investments on the continent. At the same time, one key issue that's going to come up is the debt management um, for African countries, uh, which is a huge issue. We're finding African countries who are choosing between key priorities. You're talking about education and health and um, and and climate action. There is a huge debt crisis going on. So part of the calls in the Nairobi Declaration would be debt pauses or uh, longer repayment periods in, in new agreements and that kind of thing. Since Caroline and I spoke, the Nairobi Declaration has been formally adopted. It has also asked developed nations to honour their commitments to provide $100 billion in annual climate finance, as well as outlining funding pledges worth $23 billion for green growth, mitigation and adaptation efforts. Conferences like this always help to bring the climate crisis to the top of people's agendas, at least for a little while. But reporting from Kenya, how are you seeing this issue play out politically? Is climate a key focus or are there other more pressing issues that tend to take precedent? Climate has not always been as centre of an issue as it is today, but I think that this has definitely become a, a key priority. In recent years, we've seen extreme situations play out in the Kenyan North, especially where we're finding millions of people facing food insecurity because of a prolonged drought. And the country is continually having to direct resources to the North, whether it's in terms of food security efforts or providing water assistance. I feel that that has been a factor accelerating how much climate becomes part of the discussion, because ultimately, response mechanisms come from the main government budget. Right now, Kenya is not only heavily in debt, but also having to respond to these climate disasters. So it is center of the country's concerns at the moment and will only likely continue to be. Well, Caroline, it's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much, Madeline. Thanks again to Caroline Kimayu. You can find all of her reporting on theguardian.com. And that's it for today. The producer was me, Madeline Finley. The sound design was by Tony Onachuku. And the executive producer is Ellie Bury. We'll be back on Tuesday. See you then. This is The Guardian.